Good morning. Good morning. My name is Michael Fueling, the lead pastor here at the Village Church. If you have a Bible, would you open it to the book of John? We're going to be in chapter 8. So before we jump in there, I'd love to just have a moment of interaction, if we could. Uh, I'm going to ask a question. If the answer is yes, would you raise your hand? Whatever the answer is, there will be no judgment publicly. It will only be private judgment. No, but <laughs> raise your hand if you have ever been to a meal crafted by a Michelin star chef. One, two, th there's a handful. If you don't know what that means, <clears throat> then you have never been to a meal crafted by a Michelin star chef. Let me read you a little bit of the description. The Michelin star is the highest honor a chef and a restaurant can receive. People compare them with the Oscars award in the international culinary industry. Michelin chefs have mastered the human palate, ingredients, and what science calls molecular gastronomy or the, the science of cooking. So what the best chefs do is they create for you a multi-course culinary experience, <clears throat> excuse me, that leaves almost everybody who goes through it in awe. People pay obscene amounts of money around the globe to be able to have just one experience with a Michelin star chef. People will eat things under the leadership of a Michelin star chef that they would never touch in a million years in everyday life. So uh, we do have, uh, I think, a couple of these in Chicago. One of them is at the restaurant called Alinea. And what I'd like to do is I would love to just read to you a description of Alinea to give you kind of the uh, just insight of what the experience might be like. I got to get, get a really good voice for this, sorry. <clears throat> the chef's modus operandi is engaging the senses and playing with guest emotions throughout the course of an, at times, mind-melting evening. An Alinea meal can include up to 18 dishes, so you might find yourself there for up to four hours. And this is from their, their website. Our first floor gallery provides a multi-sensory menu that combines fine dining with experimental moments. Does that sound like incredible to anybody? Like, that's, that's just so great. All right, so might I shift the conversation from something delightful to something just a bit darker. Have you ever considered that Satan is as masterful and intentional at creating experiences that lure and entice the human soul as Alinea is at alluring and enticing a hungry stomach? Before we get to John 8, we're going to have an appetizer. Did you catch that? In, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I think this is going to set us up for John 8. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, and you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is talking about before you were a Christian, before you personally trusted in Christ. He says this in verse 2, these trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Paul says that we're walking, that there is a pathway, if you will, that our sinful hearts and our sinful minds are going to choose. But let's be honest. There are a million different pathways that my sinful heart could take. How does my heart choose which pathway to take? 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says next in verse two. Following the courses of this world. Now think about like a, a racetrack. In a course, it is perfectly designed with ebbs and flows and ups and downs, and it's designed with an outcome in mind. So what most people don't recognize is that the expression of your sin is almost always a part of a predetermined course. Let me illustrate this. Sinful expressions are like fads. They come and they go, and they change from culture to culture and generation to generation. For example, fad for, or fad, cutting for a while was a fad. Now, there's been cutting throughout human history, particularly in demonically motivated religions, but like there was a fad not too long ago where high school and junior high girls would cut, and they would all use almost the same lingo, and the lingo went something like this. I don't feel inside, and this helps me feel. Now, it's interesting. Those are not their words. Those are words implanted in them by the prince of the power of the air. That there, there is a way of doing things. And so you have this experience, this emotion, this darkness inside of you. Well, what do I do with it? How do I know which pathway to take this thing? And what most people don't realize is that there are only a handful of pathways and they've been laid out for people. Let me give you some other illustrations. Suicide. Uh, people feel things all the time, but it's not an accident that in certain environments, this is the pathway out that is laid out for people. And the more it happens, the more people do it because the pathway gets clearer and clearer. Or there are certain surgeries that throughout history, nobody would even think of doing. But when you have a sinful impulse, the evil one lays out a course or a pathway for you to take. And so people do things and then other people do the exact same things. And there's, it's interesting how vanity actually follows the same course for thousands and thousands of people. There are certain kinds of cuss words. There are cool addictions, certain kinds of sexual experimentation that become faddish in certain cultures and times. And from generation to generation, there are these pathways created for sin. Most people are never thinking to themselves, I am literally walking a predetermined pathway to express my sinful hearts. Most people think we are innovative. We are unique And I'm telling you, as I just watch people, we all do basically the same things over and over again, and we follow the same courses and the same pathways. But the Apostle Paul, like, clarifies. I mean, who created these courses? Here's what he says. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, lest you for a moment think that your sin is Satan's fault, Paul will not let you think that. All Satan does is he takes what is already in our hearts and our minds and he plots out a culinary experience for our souls that we run to over and over again. And he wants to keep keep us at this table for as many hours as he possibly can. And we don't see this. We just think, oh, I'm so unique. I'm going to do my... And we don't realize we're literally falling into the pathway, into the course that he's laid out for us. But he says this in verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The sin issue is ours. But the pathway and the courses that we walk are, are, are very consistently 
laid out for us. The New Testament has a different word for this. It's called a scheme. And Satan is called a schemer. And he has multiple schemes throughout the world that people fall into on a regular basis. And a scheme is very simply, it's a well-crafted plan. Often, I would say almost always, but often with ill intent. And let's be honest, nobody in this room wants to fall prey to a schemer or a scam, do we? But as I'm looking out, there, there are many, many people who have lost so much under a ruse. Somebody bought and sold you one thing, but you didn't realize there was ulterior motives behind it in the process. You lost more than you possibly could have imagined. Nobody in the world wants to be taken advantage of. And when we are taken advantage of, fewer people ever will admit it because it's embarrassing. It's hard. Like you want to believe I'm better than that and I'm smarter than that. And then yet here all of us go following the patterns and the schemes of the evil one. And Satan's schemes, they always have one larger agenda and that is to oppose God. And so his agenda, if you are an unbeliever, is to make it as difficult as humanly possible for you to seriously consider Jesus. And if you are a believer, your salvation is secure, but his agenda is going to be to do whatever he can to make sure that you do not connect to and relate to God on a daily basis. Is your prayer life harder than you want it to be? Have you found yourself avoiding the word of God? Have you found every excuse imaginable not to go to church and be with the people of God? Are your children further and further away from godly influence and teachers and mentors? All of these are the basic age-old schemes of the evil one. And it's not like he tapped into something that wasn't already there. Independence, leave me alone. I want to do my own thing. I want to sleep in. The list goes on and on. All he's doing is plotting a course and a pathway. And our hearts go, yes, sir. And we don't even realize that we do this. Now, John 8. Let me set up some context for you because there's a bit of dialogue in John 6, 7, and 8. And Jesus is navigating really the personification of evil in his life, who's the Pharisees. And so in John chapter 8, we find ourselves at the very last day of one of the most important feasts and festivals uh, in the Jewish tradition. It's called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tents. And it was basically a week-long plus time to remember uh, that God's presence was with them in the wilderness. And so they have all of these rituals and traditions set up so that they can mark this time as sacred. And so what happened in John chapter 7 is on this great day, Jesus stands up and he does something incredibly controversial. He stands up, it seems right at the time when there is this tradition where the priests take this big jug of water, they walk around an altar and they pour it out. And then Jesus stands up and says, I am the living water. I want you to imagine this is like you're, you're at a Christmas Eve candlelight service. And we're all here and it's real quiet and the fire is spreading. Remember when you used to use like real fire instead of the electric lights? And so like we're lighting the fire and then someone stands up and says, I am the light of the world. What do you feel when somebody hijacks that sacred moment? Irritation. How do you imagine the Pharisees felt? Like probably less than thrilled. So we're on the, the last great day of the Feast of Tabernacles or tents or booths. Jesus has already hijacked it. And then there's an undercurrent, by the way. And so the, the undercurrent is like everybody kind of knows that the Pharisees are trying to catch Jesus and they're trying to kill him. Like this has become sort of common knowledge and people are kind of looking everywhere. Like, is he here? Is he there? Where is he going to be at? And, and so he pops up on the great day, but then he gets away. And so what happens in John 8 is we find ourselves in a different part of the temple. It's called the treasury or the woman's court. And it's very important because in this place are going to be only Jews. And so Jesus is going to pick up this dialogue. And what happens in the, in the treasury on the great day of the Feast of Tents 
is there's what's called the lighting of the torches. And so what happens is during the daytime, as evening comes closer, they would light a bunch of torches and candles. And, and as it got darker and darker, the people were reminded that in the wilderness, God was with them fire by night. And this is a really important way to culminate the entire week and to culminate this set of events and this celebration. And so it was a really happy time. It was a celebration. Sometimes people would stay there into the wee hours of the night and dance and sing and sing the old traditional songs. Like, this is a moment. And if you were a Jew, you looked forward to this. And if you had the privilege to be in the court of the women of the treasury, you would look forward to this moment. But the tension is pretty palpable. And people are wondering, will Jesus just hijack the last traditional moment? He hijacked Christmas Eve service. Is he going to hijack our present opening on Christmas Sunday as well? Look at John chapter 8, verse 12. And it seems in the lighting of the torches, Jesus again hijacks the moment. It says again, Jesus spoke of them, to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So controversy about Jesus aside, he's communicating something really powerful. Without Jesus, you are walking in spiritual darkness. And, and in this moment, he is exposing what I really think is the greatest scheme in all of human history of the devil. The scheme is this, tricking people that they're in the light when they're actually in the dark. Like there's a whole bunch of people, all, these people believe they are on the right side of history. They believe that they are the people of God to the core of their being. And so somehow in these conversations, Jesus has to show them, no, that's a trick. You, you've actually believed a scheme. If you reject me, God in the flesh, you actually can't be of God. Because if you're going to be of God, you can't just therefore reject God. Now, they don't see all of this yet, but he's trying to lay the foundations for this argument. And he's making it very clear. If you are not in the light, you're in the dark. Let me just say it this way. For, for Jesus, to walk in spiritual darkness is actually to be led by the devil himself, whether or not you are aware of it. Now, I have, okay, there are people out there. I have technically engaged one or two. 99.9% .9 of the people I meet have no category nor desire to be following a course laid out for them by the devil himself and upholding his agenda implicitly without knowledge. I've never met anybody who's like, yeah, I want to, if there's a real God, I want to keep people as far away from him as humanly possible, and I want to participate in this scheme. Most people have no idea, which is why it is such a dangerous trick for a person to believe they're in the light when they're actually in the dark. Uh, look at verse 23 with me. Jesus is going to get to the point where he makes this explicitly. Verse 23, he said, you are from below. I feel like he's talking to kindergartners, but I, I think he probably feels like that sometimes when he's talking to these people. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. So now he's going to shine this bright light on this evil scheme. Verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This vocabulary is very known to them because who died in their sins? The wilderness generation. They are celebrating 
a feast, a festival, if you will, that's hallmarking the season of wilderness where the Israelites wandered for 40 years. And they died in their sin because even though they had the truth of God right in front of them, their hearts were too hard to humble themselves before God. And they turned themselves to the ways of the evil one. And he looks at them and he says, you're going to go the same route as your fathers in the wilderness. You're all going to die in rebellion against God unless you come to me, Jesus. And in Jesus' economy, this is hard, I think, but in Jesus' economy, there are those in the light and there are those in the dark and there is no in between. And, and that, that concept lands really hard on people now, but it landed just as hard on people 2,000 years ago. And so by the time we get to verse 30, something happens. People seem to be getting it. And verse 30 says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. But we need to just pause for a moment because I need to explain something. Whatever happens next is not going to make sense to most of you unless we really focus on a nuance here of one word. And that word is believed. So when people, when Jesus uses the word believe, Jesus is using it like you and I do as Christians. You need to believe in Jesus Christ. You need to trust him personally in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. When Jesus uses the term in John, that's what Jesus means. When John uses the term to refer to people before Jesus' death and resurrection, he does not mean that. Here's what he means. That the people are hearing and they're believing, but they're starting to be on team Jesus. That's what he's implying. Because here's what you're going to find. You're going to watch this. They believe And the more Jesus teaches, their belief is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller until the point where they reject him. And so right now, they're on team Jesus. And as they're on team Jesus, the Pharisees are watching, and they're pretty threatened by this. But but again, Jesus is going to do a pretty successful job to make sure that his team is very, very small up until the crucifixion. Watch how this plays out. Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, if you're a Christian, this is 101. You were born into the world a slave to sin. You get this. Jesus saved you, set you free from your slavery to sin. When you trusted in Christ, you were forgiven, you were set free. If you talk to any true Christian, they will not object to this fact. I am a sinner. I am born a sinner. I have sinful impulses. I am broken. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. I need healing. We got this. Not the Jews. These people who are on team Jesus, they were on team Jesus until they exposed their sin a little bit too much. They have zero categories that they need to be freed from sin. Verse 33, they answered him, we are, Ab- we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, quote, you will become free? Okay, if you're Jesus, you're like bashing your head against the wall. You're like, yes, I understand. Literally, you are the offspring of Abraham. If we did a DNA test and we had Abraham's blood, we'd be like, oh, you're related to that guy. Here's the problem. You might be physically related to Abraham, but you are not spiritually related to Abraham. Abraham worshiped God. And those who are children of God, they imitate their father. You don't imitate God because you are imitating someone else and it's not God. And so here's what he is doing. He is really uncovering another masterful scheme of the evil one. And here's the scheme. Faith can be inherited. They think that because they're biologically, physically related to Abraham, that somehow this ensures their salvation. 
And, and, and I, I think Jesus is just like, I don't, you guys don't understand this. You can be a part of the physical people of God and not be a part of the spiritual people of God. You can be related to Abraham by blood, but not have Abraham's faith in your soul. And, and here's what we know. I don't care who you are. If your mom and dad were Christians, your siblings were Christians, your grandma and grandpa were Christians, faith can never, ever be inherited. Every single person in the world must personally own their faith. There will never be a single person in heaven who inherited their faith from their family, period. And so for you, like this is a moment to kind of just take a gut check before we go on and say, are you a Christian because of your family? Are you a Christian because you go to church? Or are you a Christian because you have personally trusted in Jesus? Like, have you ever had a moment where you apologized to God for your sin, asked him to forgive you and save you, and told him you believe in Jesus' death and resurrection for your sins? Have you ever had that moment? The amount of people who believe they're fine because of where they go to church or who their family is, it's crazy. And so what Jesus is doing with them is he's saying, it doesn't matter who your family is. And and you see this message from the beginning to the very end of John. Salvation is not for those who are born into the right family, but it's for those who are born spiritually through personally trusting in Christ for their salvation. Now Jesus is going to engage a long dialogue with them, all to make one big point. You're sinners. Sinners are slaves to sin. You need to be set free. And they are going to resist this. Jesus says in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Can we all agree on something? Every one of us are wretched sinners who have really bad desires on a regular, if not daily, if not hourly basis, Christian or otherwise. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the difference between struggling with sin and practicing sin. So here's the deal. If you believe in Jesus, you are going to struggle, you're going to fall, you're going to get back up. But there's like this thing called the Holy Spirit who also activates your conscience So that even in the process, when you're like walking the pathway that the evil one has laid out for you as a believer, there's even something inside of you. You have to overcome some emotional, mental, psychological hurdles to get there, right? For the the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, those hurdles generally don't exist. The most you get is you're going against your conscience that you grew up with. But this idea that you're somehow walking against the word of God and God himself, like this is not a very strong impulse for people who are not true Christians, who don't have the Holy Spirit. Now, let's, let's be honest again. If you're a believer, can you, not, can you quench the Holy Spirit? Yes, the answer is absolutely yes. Can you actually take that voice of the Holy Spirit and make it quieter and quieter through belligerence and disobedience? For sure. Does the Holy Spirit have a tendency to overcome that and wreck us in the process? For sure. But what I want to say to you is this. The difference between the one who practices sin and the one who struggles with sin is the one practicing sin has barely any struggles with it at all. And so here's, here's also what happens. So a believer, right? There, you're going to find this throughout your life if you haven't yet. You're going to open up the word of God and you're going to have a practice in your life that was normal for you. And then the word of God is going to tell you that it's actually sin. And then you are going to struggle to practice that thing for a long time. Like that, all of a sudden what was normal and easy is going to be challenging because that's what the Holy Spirit does. But the person who doesn't have the Holy Spirit can look at their life and look at the word and have no problems whatsoever continuing to practice the sin. Verse 35, he says, the slave 
does not remain in the house forever, but the Son remains forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Again, believers, you know this, don't you? You know exactly what it means to be set free from sin. They don't have a clue what Jesus is talking about. Here's all they know. They know, number one, I think he just called us a slave. And number two, somehow Jesus is the Son of God. They don't like it, and they're offended. So verse 37, Jesus peels back the onion even more. And unfortunately, he's going to have to tell them the truth. You've all been duped. It's a ruse. You've all been played. The evil one laid out a path for you, and it's, it's false. It's going to damn you to hell. You need, you need to get off the path. He says this, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. I'm not dumb. Yet you seek to kill me. Kids imitate their fathers. If you're the children of Abraham, he would never kill me. So who's, who's your father if you're wanting to kill me? He says, yet you seek to kill me. This is very un-Abraham. Because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And Jesus is just basically drawing simple logic. If God was your father, why would you murder somebody illegally? Because I've done nothing to break the law. Open, open up one Bible verse. Show me one thing that I've done legally, biblically to break the law. Oh, you can't find anything? So why are you trying to kill me? Because that's not something God would do. It's not something Abraham would do. Now again, they're dense as doornails, so they're not going to get it. They answered him. Abraham is our father. <sighs> okay. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Now Jesus is... is He's being implicit. He's going to get explicit in a moment. But if a child imitates the father and they're imitating somebody who is a murderer against the law, it's definitely not God as their father. And so in their hearts, um, if their hearts were willing to hear, if their hearts were tender, if their hearts were sensitive, they would go, oh, oh my goodness, oh, shoot. My heart and the word of God, they're in different places. I have a problem. I am literally conspiring murder. What is going on? I am off. Something is broken. I need to repent and go back to the word of God. That's what would happen if they were actually true believers, but that's not, that's not what's happening here. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. Okay, so Village Church, in your experience... Do you typically take it well when you are confronted and exposed publicly and embarrassed in front of your friends? By and large, no. There, there's another, I think, scheme that Satan has laid out. And here's the scheme, and you see this all over the place. The scheme is this. When your false ideas are finally exposed, rather than submit to the truth, turn around and start calling the other person in names and attacking them personally. That way, you don't actually have to deal with the issue. You see this all over the place. Jesus is literally using logic in the word of God to expose their evil intentions inconsistent with the word of God with Abraham or God the Father. They can't handle it, so now they're going to move to insults. Look at verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. So in the conversation, who was born 
of sexual immorality, or at least that was the rumor. Jesus, whose mother got pregnant out of wedlock, was publicly shamed. And so here's what they bring up in front of everybody. You were born of sexual immorality. We weren't born of sexual immorality. How dare you challenge us? It's getting low. He says, we have one father, even God. Where's your dad? Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. I I need you to see this. Exposing someone's life as a ruse or their main purpose of their life as being devoted to a scheme is humiliating. Listen, when you share the gospel with somebody and you want them to trust in Christ, in your brain, you might think things like this, like Jesus is truth. I want you to be forgiven of your sins. I want you to have the Holy Spirit. And that is all true. But let me tell you about most people here on the receiving end. So you're telling me that everything I've devoted my life up to up until this very moment was a scheme of the evil one? That it was actually a trick to keep me away from God and that I am wrong? And you want me to change my entire worldview and then believe and be baptized, get up in front of an entire group of people and say, my entire life up to this moment on the most important fundamental questions of life, I was wrong and everybody up to this moment, I led astray. And if they listen to what I'm saying, they are damned to hell. Okay, do you understand? That's not easy for anybody. But listen, if you are a Christian in this room, that is your story. If you are somebody particularly who became a Christian past the age of like 11 or 12 years old, that is your story. You were wrong. You saw the truth and the love and the light of Christ and he gently shone a light on your sin. And the the Bible uses this phrase that he transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Like that is a big deal. And so this is, this is why First Peter, he talks about when you're sharing the gospel, you do this with gentleness and respect because the weight of this conversation is more than just trust in Christ. There is an admission of wrongdoing that is really, really hard for almost everybody. And let's be straight. Do you all like to be right? For sure. If you have children or people who look up to you, do you really like to be right? Definitely. And who wants to be told that I bought into a scheme or a ruse for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 70 years, and I got tricked? And let's just be really clear. Nobody gets tricked because they're dumber than somebody else. Sin blinds all of us. And so when people come to Christ, it's not a matter of you're smarter than them or they're smarter than you. It's a matter of God opens your eyes to see the beauty and the truth of Jesus. But Jesus is going to double down in verse 44, and he's now going to say explicitly what has only been implicit till now. You are of your father, the devil. In case you guys didn't catch what I'm saying. (laughs) And your will is to do your father's desires. Okay, that lands heavy, but have you ever sat with a group of spiritual leaders who are coordinating your murder? 
Like in that context, this doesn't quite land as, I don't know, offensively. It more lands appropriately. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is you're not of God. Here's what I love. Jesus in this moment is not battling them, duking it out, trying to defend his life, trying to get them to stop murdering him. If I was navigating a bunch of people who were trying to murder me, I might try to convince them to stop. He is concerned, not with the murder plot, but what the murder plot says about their heart. In this moment, he is shining light onto their sin rather than defending and protecting himself. It's interesting, his actual like, love for these people is strikingly on the page. He's shining a light on their hearts so they might, and then he lifts up the word of God. He says, your heart and the Bible that you say is true. They're not on the same page. You need to repent is what you need to do. Whoever's of God, verse 47, hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear is that you're not of God. Offensive, maybe objectively true, definitely. In verse 48, you just see this, by the way, the same people who believed in him a few verses earlier. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? So they called him a Galilean earlier, uh, and that's offensive. That's like, you're low class. Now, this is like the insult of insults. You're a Samaritan. And then they take it one step deeper, and they say, you have a demon. This is gaslighting in epic proportions. They're the ones literally being inspired by the doctrine and ideas and courses and pathways of demons. And they look at him and say, you're a demon. Okay, sure. Jesus answered, and I, I, when I get to heaven, I want to ask him what his tone was here, because I don't know what the tone was, but it's, I'll tell you what I think it is. I do not have a demon, <laughs> but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. I want to close with two so what's. Number one, I want to talk to Christians first. Learn to identify Satan's signature moves. Satan has like seven trademark moves. Now, a whole separate sermon series around the pathways, the courses that Satan has designed for different sinful impulses to walk in this day and age. That's a different series. What I want to talk about now are like the seven trademark moves that he has. When you see these seven things, here's what I want you to say in your brain. Oh, Satan is at work right now. Oh, this is classic Satan. So that you might actually look at that and say, I don't really want any part of that. Here's number one. Destruction of the image of God. And who is the image of God? It's people, image bearers. And anytime you see, whether it's abortion, whether it is some versions of war, like oftentimes in those moments when people are being destroyed, here's what you can know. Oh, the evil one is at work. This is a pathway he created and designed and vengeful, prideful people are walking it, and those with power are using it to end the lives of other people. Be cautious about jumping in and championing things where the image of God is destroyed. Number two, perversion of gospel shadows. Um, there are a handful of things, we call them shadows, because um, what they do is they're created by God, given as gifts to humanity, to show us experientially pictures of our relationship with God. 
And when you find a shadow, shadows are, are imbued with unusual power to create great joy and great sadness. Uh, often what you find is these shadows are sacred to God. And so here's a couple. One is the family created to give us a picture of God's relationship with not just the church between Jesus and his sacrificial love, but the family of God as brothers and sisters, which is why the power of shared blood is enormous. You don't mess with my little brother. You don't mess with my big sister. You don't touch them. There's a ferocity and that we are created to be unusually loyal and connected, which is why when family ties are broken, it ruptures the soul. We're not created for this. Another one is marriage, this beautiful institution given to create or to show us an image of Christ and the church and sacrificial love and the gospel. And it's why when somebody says like, you mess with my wife, wow, you mess with my husband, you mess with a marriage and things just get real hot, real, real fast. Sexuality, another one designed by God imbued with more power than we can imagine to show every single person the power of union and intimacy between God and his people. You mess with that, you mess with the human soul. And so these are created by God. And anytime you watch these be perverted or destroyed, or when you watch people invited into scenarios that break these things apart, here's what you just got to step back and say, Satan's at work. Classic Satan. I know that game. I've seen that game. Division of people against each other. Again, I think when you watch a church or a group of spiritual leaders, you watch a family divide against itself, here's what you just need to step back and say, interesting. Satan has a foothold. This division is not good nor right. He is having a field day right now. Another one is interfering in evangelism, understanding that Satan is very invested, if you are not a believer, in keeping you from not just hearing, but engaging in any serious dialogue where you might consider Jesus if you are a believer, he will do whatever he can to create obstacles for you to lovingly and with integrity share the gospel with someone in your life. Again, the verses that are next to these are just the tip of the iceberg, and there's so much there. But again, these are just to give you some initial direction if you want to go deeper. Here's, here's another one. Infiltration with demonic doctrines. This happens in the church. This is why actually one of the reasons God has elders in a local church because there are so many false teachers with terrible ideas looking to infiltrate the church with bad doctrine. So you have a group of spiritual leaders designated. One of the purposes is to protect the church from really terrible ideas that harm people, that harm the soul. And when you see false doctrine, you go, classic Satan, that's what he's doing. He's up to his old tricks again. This is how he works. The world buys false doctrine, hook, line, and sinker because they don't have the Holy Spirit. But in the church, we have to be really careful when there's a false teacher. We're aware that this is what he does. Another one is inciting rebellion against authority. Authority in scripture is really important. And so when you find children disobeying and rebelling against their parents, Christians rebelling against the Bible, churches rebelling against spiritual leadership or government. You just step back, you just say, you know what, sometimes rebellion is necessary because the leaders are evil, but a lot of the times it's actually just the age-old pride in our hearts that he taps into because nobody wants to be told what to do or to be led because we're all smarter than the leaders who are above us, and we might be, but that impulse in us, the course to be rebellious against authority is a real normal thing. Lastly, you have destruction of the elders in the church. In 1 Timothy 3, there is a list of qualifications for elders. The last two are interesting because one of them is that the elder must not be a new convert. 
And the other is that the elder must be well thought of by outsiders. Why? Because these are two of the easiest ways for the evil one to discredit a spiritual leader in the church. There's there's a bigger principle here that if you pull out and say, interesting, Satan is going after the spiritual leaders in a church seeking to discredit them because if he can discredit them, he can take down the whole church. And you know this, church hurt sets people back sometimes spiritually years or decades or keeps them away from intimacy with God and other people for the rest of their lives. These are like classic Satan. And when you watch these, just take a moment before you jump in and participate. Take a moment before you just buy in. Think critically, slow yourself down because you very well might be unknowingly joining in and promoting the age-old schemes of the evil one. And it does not matter what culture you're in, what generation you live in, whether they have technology or not, 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, or today. He is a master at the human heart. He is a master at creating culinary experiences that your heart wants to follow that give it immediate salvation but leave you only in opposition to God and his purposes. I want to I take the second so what, and I want to talk to those of you in the room or watching or listening who have, have never trusted in Christ. And Jesus has like a blunt way of saying things that again, I think it just lands hard, but there might be somebody who needs to just hear it as bluntly as Jesus addresses it. Without Jesus, you are a slave to sin. And I would say, I'm gonna give you the benefit of the doubt, unknowingly, Satan schemes. And I, I just have incredible news for you. I know, I know that you would never want to knowingly be a part of the greatest scheme in human history to keep people as far away from knowing God as humanly possible. But even that, even if you had spent your entire life, decades and decades of your life, championing and supporting things that held people back from knowing God, the blood of Christ has the power to forgive you in this moment today, right now, and to release you once and for all from being a slave to sin, gives you the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the people of God, forgiveness, the security of your salvation, the gifts that God has for you are innumerable and wonderful. And I also, I want to empathize because I get, I get it. I don't care how old you are, to trust in Christ is to acknowledge up until this point you've been wrong. And that stinks. That's hard. But if Jesus is right, and I don't say this flippantly, who cares? If there is this much on the line and Jesus is right, there is light and there is dark and you're with him or you're not. There is no middle ground. There may today be the day where you say, I'm done protecting my pride. I'm done trying to be right. Today I'm gonna trust in Christ because I need to be reconciled back to him. In, first, in John, he says this, I'm the, earlier in the, in, the, in, the, in the chapter, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In 1 John 3, 8, here's what what John says. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And this is the offer that Jesus has for every person to forgive and to undo what the devil has sought to destroy and to renew 
and to make you more and more into the image of Jesus. That is a, that is a great gift. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit. All of these work together to create and give us clarity. Every one of us in the room confess we so easily are duped and tricked. And we do, even though we have your word. Even though objectively, if we were to like really think about it, we know that some of the things that we do are just plain old dumb and they are a course, a pathway set in front of us by Satan. We know that, and yet we do it. Just thank you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who is just unrelenting and continually convicting us and drawing us back to reality and to truth. Thank you for that. We don't, we don't deserve this. And so as, as, as we think about how good you have been to us, would you, would you well, us, well our hearts with gratitude because we're blind unless you give us sight. And your word just speaks to all of these things that we see all around us today. And it's crazy because it's 2,000 plus years old. So Lord, as we ponder all of this and all of the implications, for those of us who know you, would you give us eyes to see the schemes that are happening all around us and even in our personal lives? And and for those who have yet to trust in Christ, would you just show them what is true and what is right about who Jesus is? We submit all of this before you. We love you and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Well, this time in our service, we have the joy to celebrate communion together. And what we find in Scripture is that Satan has a larger scheme, which is to oppose God. And Jesus' agenda, though, is to reconcile us back to God. And communion is this time where we come together and we remember that we were once under the domain of darkness, now through faith in Christ, have been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And so if you have personally trusted in Christ, or if today is the first day that you wanted to make the decision to trust in Jesus as your God and Savior, we are going to partake of communion together, and I want to invite you to do that. Um, In a moment, we're going to have a time of silence. We're going to sing together. And and during the silence of the song, you are free to get up at any time and grab elements if you didn't get them when you came in. There's a column to my right, also to my left. You'll find them there and then between the double doors in the back. What we're going to do is we're going to um, sing, and after we're done, we're going to wait to partake. We're going to partake together all at the same time as a symbol of our unity that is in Jesus. All of us are sinners, and all of us are saved in the exact same way. It is through faith, belief, and the death and resurrection of Jesus, the light of the world, and the living water. So let's have a time of, of silence before the Lord, and then we'll pray, and then we'll sing.